Welcome to the Panza Panza Forum. In the Yoruba language, the word panza is usually injected into poetry to express an uncomfortable, uncensored and inconvenient truth. The Panza Panza Forum is candid conversations about the life of African immigrants in America as it relates to their adaptation to their new home. While some may find it easy to integrate and can balance between retaining the original African culture while accepting the culture of their new home, many continue to struggle to find a balance between both worlds. Hello and welcome to Panza Panza Live. This is a podcast where we discuss the lives of African immigrants and their assimilation into Western society as they raise younger generations in a country that is quite different from their own. We also explore the experiences of children of immigrants as they balance the African and Western cultures. I am your host, Baba, and together with the founder of Panza Panza and my co-host, Ms. Kemi Sariki, we present to you this informative, interesting, and expansive dialogue about the intricate experiences of African immigrants in America. Welcome to Pansa Pansa Live Podcast. I'm your host, Kemi Siriki, and today we have Dr. Osemota, a Nigerian-American raised in Jamaican Queens, New York. Dr. Osasu Osemota attended seven years accelerated program of Sophie Davis MD program in City College of New York in Harlem. And she completed medical school at Northeast Ohio Medical University. She then went to complete her residency training in OBGYN at NASA University Medical Center in Long Island. Like I said before, thank you so much for joining me. I recently had a conversation with Dr. Giwa. And on the podcast, we talk about race, culture, and identity, and navigating through the field of medicine as a medical student and as a practitioner. So as a Black man, I talked about how it was for him to navigate through that space. We also talked about having conversation. He actually suggested, said, you know, maybe we should have a female point of view. And I said, that would be great for us to have a female point of view on this topic. So that's why I said, I'm so lucky. I'm so grateful for you to be here today. So can you just fully introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background to our audience, as well as where you were born, where you spent most of your childhood and adult life? Thank you so much for inviting me to your platform. It's my greatest pleasure um, to share my experience. And to those listening, I, as you explained, I was a, I was born in Nigeria, in adult state. I came to the U.S. when I was two years old and practically haven't left since then. <laughs> Raised in Jamaica, New York with my, my mom and my dad. Most of my childhood was spent in Queens. I went to Thomas Edison, which is in Queens. And then subsequently, I went to Sophie Davis, which was based in Harlem for the first five years of a medical school training. Then I finished the last two years of my clinical rotations at Northeast Ohio Medical University in um, Rootstown, Ohio. And then I finished my, after medical school, I came back to Long Island in New York, where I did my OBGYN, Associates in Gynecology, residency training. Okay. So now, for the past two years, I have been with a private practice, which has several locations in Queens, as well as Long Island. And my personal mission is to work in underserved communities for minority populations, which was part of my mission 
to begin with when I journeyed my medical school. So that is how I became here. And I'm glad because it's a great thing to give back, to remember where you come from, to understand that, to be able to view the population that you came from, whereby there might be disparities when it comes to medical care and the kind of that they could get and being able to find a doctor that looks like them, their background. And that is very, very important, which is, you know, I really commend you for that. So you said you attended the seven years accelerated program at City College in Harlem. Can you briefly educate me and many members of our audience, especially with may not know those who may be interested in such program? Oh, absolutely. Well, it's no longer uh, the names of the Sophie Davis School of Biomedical Education. However, the it's now transitioning to its own um, medical school, but they still have a seven-year tract. So essentially, uh, what brought interest into that program was because one of their mission statements was to increase the number of minority physicians in underserved communities throughout New York State. So that was one of their missions, which was aligned to my personal goals, which is how I came about to know it. So the way that the program works is that the first five years of schooling in the traditional four years of undergraduate and four years of medical school, they combined it into a seven-year accelerated program. So the first five years, they have integrated undergraduate and medical school courses at their campus in Harlem. And then you finish your last two rotations, clinical rotations, at a participating medical school. Some were in New York, and then, of course, they had branched out into other places, such as Northeast Ohio, which I attended. That is the crux of my journey. Now, the way that they select, because it's a highly competitive um, program, actually how I got into it, because I didn't come from a traditionally, what they call a specialized high schools. Usually they target students, um, talented students from those areas, but they had like a bridge to medicine program, meaning they had a program from that were geared for students that they wouldn't necessarily naturally pick from to see if they would qualify for an interview. Thankfully, by God's grace, I worked and I was able to be afforded an interview and eventually got accepted into the program. So do you have to be in like STEM program in order for them to invite you for invitation or something like that? Traditionally, yes. But now because their own medical school, you no longer have to do that. Now you can just apply directly as you would with any CUNY or SUNY school. So you have to do your first degree there first. Yes. So you would be awarded bachelor's of biomedical sciences from that school as well as your medical degree. Oh, wow. So that's how it goes. I'm glad, you know, you're able to educate our audience or maybe some other people might have their children who might be interested in such a... Yeah, absolutely. I would say if anyone is really sure that they want to become a doctor, it's an excellent way to pursue that. It's very good because when it comes to minority communities, it's very difficult. Yeah. You don't have role model to help you through those kind of areas. What do you do as an OBGYN? And I know just to educate many of our audience, and I know that you focus on diversity population, minority that you serve within where you, your job is located. What do you do as an OBGYN? So I am basically a doctor for women's health. I uh, see women for their well-woman visits. That includes their pap smears. Their, they come for me for breast checks, mammograms. And also I help deliver babies, whether it's fashion delivery or through cesarean sections. Mm-hmm. And then after the reproductive years, if they have any other concerns, whether it be through fibroids, ovarian cysts, or maybe they just desire to just have other alternatives to no longer have their bleeding cycles, for example, or their menstrual cycles, I also assist with that in terms of, of 
ablations, meaning you basically cauterize or burn the layer of the uterus Mm -hmm. so they no longer have any bleeding. Most That's usually the main complaint for most of my patients that come to see me or see an OBGYN is that they have a very hard time dealing with their menstrual cycles and it interferes with the quality of life. So I help provide means to address that whether it be through surgery or whether we do some type of hormonal intervention. Okay. And you still continue to do research, right? Not actively at this moment, but it is a desire of mine. Um, I do want to go back to possibly going to minimally invasive surgery or basically laparoscopic surgery and robotic surgery. So um, it does have a, a research component to that. So I, I am interested in furthering my uh, skills in that. Part of the question that I always ask uh, first generation is that everybody have different experiences anyway. So I asked about the challenges and the struggle of being the first generation African immigrant child. What are the benefits of growing up in an African home and what would you consider to be the disadvantage? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I would say the benefit is structure. Being in a two-parent family household, I, looking back, I do see that there is such an advantage that I probably, I probably took for granted. Um, you know, with Africans, they tend to find a network of other Africans. <laughs> so in similar fashion, they have like other play cousins or people that I grew up with known as my aunts and my uncles, although we're not blood related, but because we had similar traditional morals and values, you know, that we're able to create a little community. So I think looking back, having that structure of having my mom and my dad who pushed education and really encouraged me to pursue whatever goal that I wanted was honestly very invaluable. Because a lot of the times when I went to school, um, that wasn't the case. A lot of my colleagues and people that I grew up with came from a single parent household or had a mom that was working three or four jobs. So they weren't able to probably nurture, encourage them that in the capacity that they could just because they were just so busy and it, they weren't able to get that type of porn into. So I think that that was definitely a benefit that is, you know, just no price tag on that, honestly. I would say the disadvantage it's kind of like a two-edged sword because with the two-family household, the, the community is so insulated. It's very difficult to kind of assimilate or relate to people that may not be Nigerians, let's just say, for example. It was difficult to kind of see a different perspective. It wasn't until I went into college where, you know, I wasn't necessarily under the direct um, supervision of my parents. And I had to spend a lot more time with other people of different backgrounds that I was able to, I guess, further um, integrate and kind of get my own understanding of what their struggles are. And all, but also to see how we're also very similar. Your program, when you went to medical school, was it predominantly Black? I mean, people of color or mixture? So surprisingly, no, it wasn't predominantly Black, although part of the, again, the mission statement was to increase the number of Black physicians, but it was very diverse. It was a lot of, it was like maybe a quarter percent Black total, um, a quarter percent from the Jewish population, and then the rest is a mixture of Hispanics and white. Some of the conversation I've always want to have regarding issue of race and how Africans sometimes we have no understanding of what it is to be black in America. So I just want to ask you growing up, do you have any conversation about your blackness and uh, your African identity with your parents? And how would you summarize your identity as it relates to your dual identity as an African 
as well as Black American? I would say my nationality, my ethnicity, I am a Nigerian Edo woman. Mm. But in terms of colorize or the greater race constructs that I'm considered a black woman. When anyone look at me, they would first identify me as black, which I can understand. But in terms of combining the two, mm-hmm. I identify myself equally as both. If I was to go to Nigeria, for example, they would consider me Akata because <laughs> <laughs> I probably don't have the same lingo or the same, I guess, daily, day-to-day struggles or understand their daily, day-to-day struggles. So they would automatically think that I don't necessarily identify them or that I won't be able to relate to them. So in Nigeria, because of the Akata, but here, you know, they would, if you have your friend, my friends, you know, talk to me about that. No, this girl is a Nigerian person. She is a Nigerian woman. She will tell you from her chest every day. You know, I celebrate Afrobeats. I eat my Nigerian food. I invite all my friends to my uh, Nigerian family function. So I would say that I experienced both. I think the, the duality of it is that Because I'm Nigerian and because people identify me as Black, Mm -hmm. and again, because of my Nigerian upbringing, let's just say specifically my parents' upbringing and them encouraging education for me, I'm able to visualize or I don't necessarily see the same struggles necessarily that maybe other Black people who may not know who are born here, let's just say, for example, who don't have access to their traditional roots may have access to. I do see that. Yeah, that's true. Because part of what Dr. Giwa and I spoke the other time is the lack of Nigerian accepting uh, many of our children who were born abroad or brought there at a very young age and they grew up in this society where they have to kind of like struggle between both sides. When they are among the Nigerian, they are not fully accepted because they don't consider them to be fully Nigerian. Mm-hmm. When they are within the Black Americans, they don't consider them to be fully Black. Like struggle with those identity and he thoroughly express his feelings about that. In terms yeah. of when it comes across many Nigerians, especially whereby he wants to relate, he wants to speak the language, he wants to be able to be accepted. He feels that he's being pushed away, he's being categorized right. that you don't really belong. It right. Come across those kind of feelings, you know, even among the Nigerians here yourself. I would say initially I did. I feel like in any circumstance, mm-hmm. what binds people together are their experiences. So whether it's in, in Nigeria, it could be from two, let's say, different tribes, Yoruba, Igbo. But because they both lived in Nigeria in proximity, they have similar experiences. So even me who may have been, let's say, Igbo or Yoruba, but because I lived in America, I have a different set of experiences. So they won't be able to relate to me as they can relate to someone that is in proximity of them that have shared experiences with them. With that understanding, I don't blame them. <laughs> Do you know? Like, it's just based on what they know. Based on what they know, what the, what the experience they have may have encountered people that were Nigerian that came from America to Nigeria and they had a certain experiences and that's, which is very limited, but that's all that they know. Mm-hmm. So my goal, which is to relate to them, to share their experience with them, to share what I've learned, 
eventually, from at least from my experience, eventually they see that, okay, even though she lives in America and she's come here, she wants to relate. She wants to be involved. I see that she's eating the food. She's <laughs> talking, she's, even though the accent is different. I, I see you changing the accent now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even though the accent is different, it's not like a true Nigerian, but she's trying. And most people respect that. Most people genuinely relate to that. So once I find the commonality between both circles, whether it be from Black people and from Nigerian people and proper, most of the time I'm able to relate. So it's easier for me to transition between both worlds. Which is very good. So thank you so much for that. I'm glad you're able to understand from that perspective in terms of understanding that sometimes it's people's experience that pull them together. Yeah. But a lot of time also being able to reach out to our children, because I understand from his own perspective, from where he sees it, whereby you feel like uh, you are not really Nigerian, you are an American, because listen to your accent, you cannot really relate. And everybody's feelings is different. I just want to connect with you, but you are really not connecting with me. Or I will only connect with you when I need help, when I needed help from you. When I need to get something, that's when I'll connect with you, which I, part of what I explained to him that not too many of all Nigerians do that, but certain group of people. And also, no matter how much exposed you have, how much limited exposure that you have, as long as somebody is trying to connect back and forth with you, you should actually recognize that. So I said, from this forum, other people who may listen to it, we understand that no matter what, our children wherever they come from, wherever, however they want to connect with us, we should be able to do that. You Absolutely. Know. So thank yeah. you for, for explaining to that. Knowing that many African parents do not dive into uncomfortable conversation with their children, especially African immigrant parents, can you think back to the, your childhood? What conversation would you have preferred that your parents have with you growing up? Hmm. That's a good question. I kind of wish that they talked more about the Black experience. It wasn't honestly, again, it wasn't until college when I was interacting with um, other Black Americans on a more frequent and more intimate basis, whether it be through um, college or projects, stuff of that nature, that I can visualize or really see in up close what their struggles are. So... I'll say I come from a very humble family. <laughs> we come from humble beginnings. Poverty in America is not the same as poverty that can be experienced in some levels of Nigeria. <laughs> so, yeah, side. so because of that, and because, again, my parents really instilled hard working, a work ethic, and really, you know, emphasized on education. It wasn't until I got to college where I saw that other people may not have been as motivated but also seeing, like, for example, I had a friend that came from a single parent household. His mother passed away and his father was a chef um, and they lived in the same apartment building in Harlem for well over 20 years. But his father fell ill. So he had to, you know, work three jobs to take care of the rent, to take care of his father's medical bill. And, you know, he was 19 years old, you know, so and. All I had to do by the grace of God was just concentrate on my books. You know, I couldn't even really imagine going through something like that, becoming, you know, essentially the caretaker of your father at such a young age, 
as well as, you know, pursuing education because he also wanted to be a doctor. Like I was shocked that he had such a burden and he didn't necessarily have because his father was also only child. <laughs> so he didn't have like a circle of other family members to kind of help him. It was just, it, I didn't realize some of the struggles also that is just different from us. Mm-hmm. Also in college is when I had my first encounter with the uh, police enforcement. Again, for most Nigerians, I would say that we are taught to respect authority whether it be police officers or your parents or people's other people that are older than you are, you know, taught to respect, but we never really had a conversation on how they may view us, how they may view that we could be a threat before, you know, there's assumptions about black people, unfortunately that are visualized from, or at least that is portrayed from interactions between black people and police enforcement that I wasn't necessarily prepared for when I got to college. I didn't understand why they would have to do random checks. You know, I'm going to class. Like, why do I have to be stopped? I I just didn't under, I didn't understand it until when I saw how my other friends, other black friends, it was kind of like a routine. Like they were used to it. I wasn't. I was like, ah, I didn't do anything wrong. Did I say anything? I don't like how am I just, you know, I was really going through the motions, but I quickly realized that it was just a, um, a perception that they have of, of black people and also a perception of how black people saw themselves. Here I am going, questioning everything and so offended and so violated because I know that I come from a good house. I have to respect my parents. I have to respect authority. But my Black counterparts, they're used to this because of their use of a perception of them. And they're used to a certain, I want to say mental oppression mm-hmm. that I just was not privy to because I was pretty much sheltered. I was sheltered from it because of my community in which I grew up in. So I kind of wish that I had more of those conversations of what to expect for how people may view me before I'm a Nigerian person. They just see that I'm a Black person. So what is that perception of a Black person in society? That would be, I wish we had that conversation. I understand what you're saying. But one thing is that to realize that as an immigrant, we only have immigrant experience. That experience is historical. It's from generation to generation. As an immigrant parents are not only the African immigrants, also many other, whether you want to talk about people from Asia, from all these different countries as well, that they only come in with the immigrant experience. When something is not part of your experience, like you said, your parents taught you and said you have to respect authorities. You Mm -hmm. know, make sure you stay away from police issue. Make sure you follow directions. And when you do that, everything will be fine. Yeah. When you look at it, both Blacks, uh, people of color, (laughs) we live in the same environment. Whichever part of Africa you come from, or maybe from Latin America that you must have come from, you stay within the minority neighborhood, predominantly black Hispanics. And even within those neighborhoods, we're not intermingling with one another. Yeah. African-Americans don't understand immigrant experience. Immigrants don't understand black experience. Yeah. Until when there's a collusion between both in terms of maybe, for example, when Amadou Diallo was killed, first understanding as an African that, oh, why did this happen? What's going on? 
he was just an innocent man coming home in the evening. Is it because of the color of his skin? So that's when the awakening started happening. So even though we all live within the same community, there's still some kind of like uh, not understanding each other's struggle. Also as an immigrant, because I've heard many of our youth who come out and say, well, you know, our African parents don't want us to intermingle with African-Americans or the black people in general. The first question I ask, is it only black people that live within your community? Do you also have Latino? All those other people. Maybe you are not understanding how an African parents may phrase those kind of caution and said, if you get in trouble, it could derail the whole family. Look at their living structure back in Nigeria, in different parts of Africa. You know your next door neighbor. You are kind of in and out within people who live within your neighborhood, your vicinity. If your child gets in trouble while they are downstairs or they got in trouble with somebody who lives 10 blocks away and they got into a fight, back home, let's assume in Lagos, you could easily come out and ask somebody, do you know the parents of this person? Somebody within the community might say, I know the parents of that child that your child got into a fight with. Mm -hmm. And those parents could come together and resolve it. But as an immigrant experience, who you don't even know next door neighbor, any mistake yeah. by those family could derail the whole family. Somebody could be deported. The whole family could succumb to certain law or the authority may come on them whereby some things may happen that they were not prepared for. Right. So a lot of time is to be able to caution the children, just make sure you follow rules, you do what you're supposed to do. And then the perception of what the media also show on mm-hmm. TV about the image of Black people in this country, constantly negative. And so the same image of African-American that they show on TV is also the same image of African continent that they show on TV. Yeah. That is primitive. There's nothing going on in terms of modernization on that continent. Is it that they are fighting war, they're killing, raping? Name all kinds of human misfortune that you could name it. It's placed on the continent of Africa. To the extent right. you think that when war is going on in East Africa, it must have affected every aspect of the continent. Mm-hmm. Not focusing on East Africa, because there are many people who still think that Africa is a country in America. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Over billions of people, multi-language is being spoken. So those miseducation is part of what is creating those divisions. Like I said, the immigrant experience is what we actually possess, what we have. And that's the experience that we brought from home, our culture, our language, yeah. mm-hmm. how we discipline our children. That's what we brought from home. And that's what we instill on our children. So yeah. Those lack of conversation is not taking place. But I think things are changing little by little. And from your generation, from the younger generations, you would be those who will have those conversations within our community to understand that as parents, this is what we have to be able to expose our children to in terms of being able to talk to them about issue of race in America and what it is to be black in this country. Absolutely. Like you said, I would consider you to be lucky because even though you grew up with both your mom and your dad within the household and you have other family member who extended auntie, extended uncle, 
right. who actually contribute. And they shielded you away from what you might call other challenges that you may end up facing later on. But if, when you were growing up, you didn't have to face all those things. You were not thinking yeah. about it until when you go to college. So it's a very challenging topic, um, but we have to continue to talk about it. You Absolutely. Know, we have to continue to talk about it. When you were in college, knowing that you came from an African immigrant home, Nigerian home, how did you navigate through social life in college? Did you struggle fitting into the predominant culture on your college campus? Honestly, my program was pretty grueling, so I didn't really have that much of a social life. I did, I was aware of the African Student Union on our campus. And, you know, there were a mixture of different people from Sudan, from, you know, Ghana, from Sierra Leone. It was basically just Pan-Africa. But interestingly, I wasn't necessarily drawn to them specifically. I'm not sure if it was a subconscious or a conscious decision to really try to know more about Black um, experience, mainly because of me entering now into a field of medicine where we are underrepresented. So again, like it's not uncommon for like most African children. It's either you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer, or you're going to be an engineer. So these are the expectations, right? Um, So even though, yes, nobody in my family necessarily was doctor, but they say yes. And from your last conversation, from what you just said a few minutes ago, (laughs) which is where I'm getting to, that knowing that in Nigerian community, like you said, there are three majors or specialized experience ones. You either yeah. a lawyer or engineer. Dr. Giwa said the other time, he said you didn't include business. I said, that's right, accountant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true, yes. And you did exceptionally well, and you became a doctor. So as first-generation or second-generation immigrant children have complained jokingly and subsides create family disputes. When it comes to parents finding out their children move away from their approved career of being a doctor, lawyer, or engineer. So sometimes it creates a lot of those friction at home. Yes. One of my cousins is a wonderful example of this. (laughs) Of course, everyone expected her to either go into medicine, whether it be through nursing or something that is guaranteed, right? When I look back, I think that most of the time, parents just want to make sure that their children are taken care of. And traditionally, what they have seen was that doctors, lawyers, engineers, these are esteemed um, positions. And also, it can give some type of security in terms of living. Most parents just want to make sure that their children are able to fend for themselves. So my cousin, she actually is a very talented dancer. So she went into college. I think she has a degree in, in social work. So she had a conversation with her mom. She said, mom, give me one year. Let me just pursue this passion of becoming a choreographer. If I don't make it to one year, I will leave it alone. Now she is a well-renowned choreographer. Her name is Izzy Odigie. Okay. She you know, works with many different artists. She was one of the head choreographers for Coachella in Ghana in 2019. She's doing exceptionally well, and her mother can't be happier. Her father can't be prouder. But she still has, they make sure she still has that degree, you know, to fall back on just in case. So I think once they have that conversation between our generation and their parents, that, you know, there are other ways, avenues where you can have a vibrant livinghood 
that may not be in traditional sense of, you know, STEM um, careers or lawyership or stuff of that nature. That I think once they have that conversation and when they and when they see that there are other ways, respectable, honorable ways of living, they'll fall back a little bit. <laughs> I think maybe I'm naive in this, but I really do think most parents just want to make sure that their children are taken care of when they're gone. So they will only tell you or advise you how they know it was traditionally seen either at home or what they've seen in other countries. So choreography arts, it's new. It's not certain. There's a lot of hungry artists out there, even in America, which I understand. But once they see that their children could be successful at what they do and they can provide for themselves and for their family and give back in a meaningful way, I think they'll be a lot more supportive. I do see that now. I see that they just want to make sure that they can support themselves and that they're not going to be hungry. Well, do you think the parents should choose their children area of study to go into medicine or accounting or any other field? Um, I don't think they no, I don't think they should choose. I just think they should advise. I think that they should try to cultivate what it is that they want their children to be successful at. There's very, very talented human beings general, whether it be Nigerian or not, they just talent. There are some very talented human beings, but because it's not cultivated, because it's not encouraged, they'll never actualize their potential. Again, I don't necessarily blame parents. They can only tell you what they know, right? They probably never, they haven't never probably seen like successful artists or whatever, or painters or anything of that nature from where they come from. So they want to make sure that they secure the legacy of their children. But again, I think that as our parents grow older and as we continue to um, navigate opportunities in America, that that conversation will become more open. I've seen many situations of pushing children to do certain things that they may not be good at because yeah. they is, uh, have specialization or talent or interest in different fields. Because when children are pushed to do certain things that is against their will, there's a possibility of disconnection from the parents or dropping out of school as a result of academic fallout. Sometimes it could lead to other mental health issues that because of the push, the understanding that the parents want to push their children, you have to do this because so-so-so's child just graduated from medical school or just graduated from law school, or just got admission to Yale, or yeah, Paris. What is yeah? Can you do the same thing, mm-hmm. or even comparing siblings to one another? Mm-hmm. I remember one time that I had my first time forum that I had in the Bronx, and this young lady was talking about her and her older sister. Her older mm-hmm. sister is a medical doctor, and she is a licensed social worker. She mm-hmm. her parents and many other family members of the community continue to challenge her and say, why don't you go to medical school just like your sister? Wow. This social work mm-hmm. that you're doing, you're not going to make money out of it. And she kept on saying, I'm happy. Right, right. So sometimes the sense of uh, parents actually feeling prideful. Like I said in one of my uh, podcast episodes, I don't know whether you are aware of it in Nigeria, but culturally, especially in Lagos, like you now, you're a doctor. If I were your mom, she's no more going to be Mama Osasu. She's now going to be Mama Doctor. 
<laughs> yes. I'm a lawyer, I'm an engineer. We um, tend to hold on to those image that we want to have within our community. Mm. Life is not only about making money. Exactly. It's about exactly. knowing that I get up in the morning, I'm doing what I love to do. Mm-hmm. And I'm fulfilling my individual needs as well as my contribution to humanity. All those kind of thinking is very important in our community and it's really affecting many of our youth. It's also affecting many parents. I've seen many children that their first year in college, the parents already announced, oh, my child is in pre-med program. He hasn't even taken the first biology class. <laughs> and you're already pronouncing all over the places. Yeah. I always joke with my parents, honestly. I'm like, what happens if I wasn't a doctor? What would you guys do? Right? <laughs> because I'm the oldest of three, um, of three kids. I have two younger brothers. Okay. My, the one immediately after me, he's also a medical doctor. And the youngest one, he is going to law school. So honestly, sometimes I do think of if me pursuing medicine, if that did cause kind of undue pressure on them, I mean... They're not necessarily complaining. The doctors are lawyers, you know, the ones who want to be lawyers. So these are not necessarily uh, uh, positions to look down upon. But I that that did come across my mind whether having pursuing medicine that as and doing that as a woman whether that would put undue um, pressure or expectations for them as men in our family as a family. It is something that is true. I always try to look at the intentions of people. I, I know that nobody wants to see their children fail. They want to make sure that their children are happy and are able to sustain themselves, right? But at what cost? What cost does that, what does that look for them? What does that look for in terms of how they want to live their lives? Mm-hmm. So it is something that I also want to be very conscientious about when I start my own family to make sure that whatever interests that my children have to just nurture those interests. They don't necessarily have to be a doctor. They don't have to, if they want to pursue arts, as long as you're good at it, yeah. you can stand your life. <laughs> Fine. But it is definitely something that I want to do differently with the next generation. Mm-hmm. I've come across even among the other Americans, whether white blacks, whereby the parents may be both doctors and or they are really professional. You think their children are going to go into the same field or they are Wall Street person and the children end up being a social worker or Mm -hmm. a teacher. And the parents said, that's what they want. It's perfectly all right. It's fine. Yeah. It's all about that child's innermost feelings. Their innermost fulfillment, what they think is appropriate for themselves. Because in life, even when you have a child who is a toddler trying to walk, there will be time when they will fall down. Yeah. They learn to walk again. They learn to move around. They learn to hold on to things and see what can I do within the environment of where I am to be able to balance myself, maybe without the support of the parents or any other person who may want to see me fall down and say, oh, let me help you. Let me grab you right away. Before yeah. It's all about life lesson. And one thing that I learned in this country that which in many of our society as an immigrant back home also in America, I've seen many 
even philosophers or those who are intellectual influence in the society saying failure is an option. Even when a car is being put together, there will be many times that it's going to fail. They have to try many times in order to make it okay, to make it perfect. So they understand that it's okay because you learn. It's not that you fail. Whatever you're doing at that moment didn't just work. And you're going to learn from it. You're going to grow from whatever it is that actually brought you to that level. You're going to grow out of it. And you learn another lesson. You move up again. So a lot of time, of course, we want our children to not face many difficulties in life. We have to also look at ourselves, you know, growing up back home. There are many times that what I actually ask many of my peers, you know, because I've been in this country now for quite a while. And I ask them, what was your own dream when you were growing up? What dream did your parents actually have for you growing up? Mm. What did you want you to be? Did you actually become what they wanted you to be? Mm-hmm. You fulfill your own parents' need. And many of my peers will tell you that, no, I didn't. I never did. It's for us to be able to understand that. So let me move on on the conversation anyway. So can you talk a little bit about your time when you were in medical school, school? What are the most challenging times for you? Many of other students of color. I didn't have a word for it back then, but from... What I understand it now to be is what they call imposter syndrome. So imposter syndrome is when you feel like you don't belong just because you think there's some people that are better than you when in actuality, you met all the recommendations, you met all the qualifications, you yourself, you applied because you felt that you had the qualifications and now you're there. But one of the challenges um, for me was that, again, trying to reconcile how I saw myself with how the world viewed me. And one very prominent instance in my life was that when we were rotating the medical school, all of the students, we all have our med- our white coat. But without question, they whenever it came to me, when I started to interview the patients, it's always a question of, oh, are you, are you also a medical student? Are you the nurse? Are you the PCA? It always baffles me because I'm like, I know that I have you know, the same white coat. I have the same emblem. We all, the doctor introduced our, ourselves as these are the medical students. But whenever it came to me, and I was one of the only five Black students there at the medical school, in the class, I should say, one of the five Black students in the class, they always questioned who I was. And they always questioned how it was that I got there. But I realized that it, for my other um, non-Black counterparts, it, it was, they always thought that they were higher, right? They're like, oh, are you the doctor so-and-so? But when it came to me, it's like, oh, are you the, are you the nurse or are you the, it was never a question upwards. <laughs> it was never a question of who I was authority-wise upwards. So it was very difficult for me um, initially to really reconcile how I viewed myself and how my community um, viewed me. And how society viewed me. And then that's when I realized that, oh, wow, that's actually, it's not a huge representation of um, um, Black people, not even just African-Americans, but Black people in medicine in general. And that was one of the reasons that I got to the program and why the medical school recruited us was to increase the diversity in, in in that region and in their school. So 
combating that was one of the more challenging aspects of my um, of a medical career. And also, you know, trying to find a network, right? And trying to find a network of people that will support me, that won't question my ability to be there, that won't see me as less than, but see me as capable. And thankfully, I did have an amazing um, support system through a church home that I established there as well. That also had a lot of huge networks of other Black um, professionals, not just med- uh, medical doctors, but lawyers, entrepreneurs, real estate engineers. And there were some inventors actually there as well. So um, I was able to connect with them as well. And they were very, very encouraging to me, um, despite what I believed I was going through. But that was definitely one of the challenges that I faced there. And essentially had to do it alone because no, I didn't have any family in Ohio. <laughs> so I had to figure it, I had to figure it out. And um, I had to make sure that I completed the task from which I set on. That was one of the more challenging. It's really something regarding that because as a person of color, whereby you're also part of the group of other race as well, coming in and somebody would look at you and say, oh, are you one of the nurses? Because it's like we're already being programmed. The society is so programmed to look at the person of color that you cannot reach certain level. Exactly. Now let's focus on the barrier faced by, you know, which you already mentioned yours by Afro-descendant student in medicine. What do you think are the barriers for Black and Hispanic students who may not have opportunities such as your program that you went through in becoming a doctor? Honestly, I would say exposure and resources. Again, thankfully, I never take my particular route to how I became a doctor for granted. There was a lot of different hands, a lot of different seeds of people that deposited into my life that I'm so grateful for because there's no turn of event that is insignificant in that regard for me. So how even, for example, how I came to know about the Sophie Davis program was my teacher, because I've always said that I want to be a doctor. My teacher in seventh grade, she said, when you go to high school, you're going to tell your guidance counselor that you want to know about the Sophie Davis school. I said, oh, Sophie Davis said, just trust me, just remember Sophie Davis. Tell your guidance counselor when you get to high school about the Sophie Davis program. I said, oh, okay. So I told my guidance counselor, hey, I want to become a doctor. He's like, okay, okay. You know, these are different paths you can do. You can do osteopathic medicine. You could do traditional. And funny story, my guidance counselor didn't think I was going to be a doctor or I was going to get accepted to medical school (laughs) or into the program. But he said, okay. So he said, what about the Sophie Davis program? He said, are you sure? Well, he was, he's Indian. Shout out to you, doctor. Anyway, he was Indian. He's like, are you sure? It's a very competitive program. I was like, I know, but my seventh grade teacher told me to tell you about it because I needed information about it. So I said, oh, okay. So that's when I got to the British medicine program. I got my interview and subsequently to the, into the Sophie Davis program. But had, had someone not told me about that opportunity, I would never know. Had someone not encouraged me to press forward with it, I would have pursued it. Honestly, I think one of the major barriers for any person is just the opportunity and the resources. And I actually tell Dr. Giwa all the time, there's the difference between Nigerians and Nigeria and Nigerians in America are opportunity. Mm-hmm. If given the same resources, the same opportunity, they will be able to do what we're able to do. So one of my you know, personal goals in life is just to present people with that opportunity. These are the opportunities that are available. These are the resources that are available. That's really the difference between like Yale or whether it's all procedures 
universities and college and not so appreciated just the opportunities that they're exposed to. They're connected to different levels of government, they're different levels of nonprofit organizations, different you know institutions of research just because of their name because they are attached to you know that name. So that name is giving them access to different resources that other students may not be privy to. So that's honestly the difference. The difference between, let's say, minorities and um, non-minority groups is just um, opportunities and access to those resources. And you're so right about that. And thank God you were able to find also the college counselor mm-hmm. who believed in you, whereby you could have divert your attention and said, you can't be qualified for that. Right. Why do you think you're going with that? Because things like that has happened or some other student who wants to pursue that area whereby the guardian counselor is influencing them, telling them that I don't think you can get into those medical school. And you mentioned one story before coming from a financially underprivileged background. Many students of color actually come from those backgrounds. You talked about one of your friends who dropped out of medical school because he's unable to, he has to work and make ends meet. Yeah. So it's all part of what needs to be addressed when we want more people in this kind of field to serve our community. There's a need for financial support because like you said, this person has to drop out to take care of their own father. Yeah, absolutely. Again, like my journey in medicine, I, even though, yes, in number, I do think it was purposed, right? It was purposed in that a lot of things could have gone wrong. And in medicine, right, we, it's, a, it's a study of pathology, right? So when you have a, a healthy individual, it is considered a walking a miracle. There's a lot of different checkpoints that has to go right <laughs> for someone to be healthy. I don't take my journey for granted. So, and I do recognize those challenges, even for someone who would be considered probably more advantageous in that they had, you know, a support system. They came from a two-family parenthood. Even in that, how difficult it was for me to get there. Do you know, so talk less of persons that do not have that support. What challenges they would have to overcome to get there. Like I said the other time, the high cost of applying for medical school, including MCAT. <laughs> because if you have to take a preparatory class, Within the minority community, it's very, very challenging. I mean, if you don't have the resources, you don't have the money, or you don't have the parents who could dish out money for you and say, okay, I'm going to pay for your couple of preparatory classes whereby you'll be able to help you, guide you through. So mm-hmm. all those things is all part of the barrier that is affecting many Absolutely, yeah. Honestly, one of the other things, right? Like, I didn't know that you had, there are people that, study for MCATs or study for SAT. I didn't, it, it was just all foreign to me. Like, I, then, But for, for example, my other Caucasian or even um, Indian friends, they're like, oh no, yeah, we do this, this, this. We go to this. And after school on Saturday, I'm like, I didn't know that we had those resources available and the preparation that was sometimes needed. So again, opportunity resources is one of the biggest barriers for, um, I think, for minorities. One of the benefits, I'm so sorry, to for the Sophie Davis program is that I personally didn't have to take the MCATs. People that accelerated through that program don't have to take the MCAT. So another incentive if people are interested in the program. Anybody who is listening to this, we understand that maybe I should get into this program better than for- <laughs> by myself and then 
not being able to get in because of all these other challenges. Because like you said, I remember when my children were preparing for college, my son at that time, I had to find somebody to tutor him, whereby his other schoolmates, parents were paying 100, 150, 200 an hour. Yeah. For somebody to tutor their child. And many of the schools we're looking for, we're looking for schools with SAT, ACT optional. Because many colleges are now going into that, understanding that just because you score high in SAT or ACT does not mean that you're going to be a good student. It's the whole package that they have to look yeah, at. Yeah, to consider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to consider for somebody to go come into their school. And the inequality is so huge. And mm. that this country has to look into. If you want to actually create equality among people, there's certain things that you have to look into to bring that level of equality to many minority who are underprivileged in all these areas. So it's very important. And we already talk about social isolation and experiencing racial biases from fellow students and also faculties as a medical student also. Yeah, and again, just finding, it's just finding your community, finding the people that will support you is hard. And again, I don't take that for granted which is why it is very important for me to kind of speak on those experiences and also to reach back with other people that who may have expressed interest in pursuing medicine to give them all the resources that I had so that hopefully they have an easier time navigating mm-hmm. and reach whatever goal that they wanted to reach as well. So after graduating medical school and officially becoming a doctor and as a black woman, of immigrant background, what are some of the structural racism you experienced as a doctor? Maybe your administration or from patient or outside your practice? Well, let's start on. <laughs> People were just confused that I was a doctor. <laughs> again, I was confused either with, and this is again, no, I'm not, this is not me looking down on nurses or PCAs or anything of that nature, but even with me being credentialed as a, a doctor and having, you know, name tag stating at such, it wasn't computing with people that I, <laughs> I was a doctor, you know, they always wanted to be other. I'm like, no, but this, I am, I mean, I am that person. I am the person that um, is here to take care of you. But from an administrative end, particularly with OBGYN, I think that Women, especially when they're in labor, sometimes they are not, their complaints aren't taken as, as seriously. And I have seen that in, in my own training and in my own experiences. For whatever reason, I think sometimes people think Black bodies are just able to endure a lot more. They are less, endure a lot more pain or endure a lot more in medications. And honestly, sometimes there were instances where I had to advocate so that they understand like, no, this is, she's in pain. She's, we have to address these complaints. I think one of the biggest challenges that I will continue to, you know, advocate for is just addressing um, the complaints and really just hearing what women are saying and giving a voice to women oftentimes. And this is women of all races or creed. Women are often not uh, taught to advocate for themselves. Usually, you know, these are mothers, they make sure that their husband and, and children are okay. And then when they finally have a time to break for themselves, then they come to their woman visits. But oftentimes, a lot of their debut processes has a dance where if they had addressed it earlier on or advocated for themselves earlier on, it would have been a preventive measure. So now we're doing a corrective or treatment measure. 
at this point now, it's just it's in terms of advocacy for minority population and equipping them with information to advocate for themselves. Yeah. A lot of times they trust what the doctors are saying. Exactly. It's just what the doctors are saying. They trust that, you know, they're going to do the best. And most doctors do, but many people are not aware of even their microaggressions or their sub- or subconscious bias um, that they do. Mm-hmm. It's just a world program. I don't think there's a lot of people that are inherently racist. Don't get me wrong. There are people that are. There are people that just consciously want to be, which is, you know, God bless them. But there are some people that are kind of just find their way stuck in the system and there are products of the system that's in place. Sometimes it's just having that voice to say, Hey, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. And they're most of the time they are receptive to it, to make those changes. The education um, in the awareness has to come in because like you said, when people of color, when you are in the care of a doctor who is not taking your pain seriously as a woman, but, you know, or as a person of color, because yeah. if you could endure more pain, it's okay. Or maybe you're actually faking it. It's not that bad. Yeah. And it's for us um, within our community to also be able to speak up. Just yeah. the doctor tells you something does not mean you can't seek another opinion. Yes. It does not mean you cannot actually find a way and say, you know what, I'm going to think about what you just told me. And read before you talk to any doctor or any professional in any field and get ready yeah. for the question to yeah. ask so that even though it might be challenging in terms of they might just shoot you to the side and said, whatever you said is not really important. But you know what? When you start questioning those who may be in control of your care, they will understand that at least this person has some idea of what of is what's going on. Yeah. You can't just lay your life on their lap and say, this is it. Yeah. And one thing that I've seen in this country that I really appreciate is a form of a support group that they have for women with different diagnoses. Whether somebody has certain diagnosis of ailment, whether certain cancer, they formulate whether breast cancer or anything. You join the support group, you learn about different medication, different treatment other people may be having and be able to bring that to your own doctor and say, listen, I need help with this. This is what I'm hearing about this uh, diagnosis, this kind of new treatment. Maybe I could take advantage of it. So it's understanding how to advocate for yourself is very, very important. Reading is very important. It's good to read. Absolutely. Sometimes my patients are like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm asking so many questions. No, please ask the questions now because this is the opportunity for you to educate yourself and for me to answer any um, misconceptions or um, clarify certain things for you. Uh, So yes, read, educate yourself, know about your body so that you know how to advocate yourself. Because me, even as a doctor, you know, I can't necessarily treat everything that you won't tell me. If you don't know that it's not normal, you're not going to complain about it. And then it's never going to be addressed. So definitely know about yourself, know about your body. If you have any questions, take it to your doctor and they have no choice but to answer or at least point you in the direction where it can be answered or where it could be addressed. So would you say your educational background and being a doctor prevents you from experiencing discrimination and racial biases? No. Every person of color faces in America because, you know, I'm asking this question, which is sometimes is obvious, but I'm asking about it because this is a platform to educate members of our community. Yeah, yeah. 
again, before people think I'm a doctor, they just, they see a black woman. So whatever experiences or, or what they think my experiences as a black woman will be is what they're going to, how they're going to interact with me. So oftentimes people are like, oh, you don't look like a doctor. I'm like, oh, what do doctors look like? You know? <laughs> you know? So no, um, I don't find that it is, I don't find well, at least initial impression with initial impression of when they interact with me that I have any less challenges with discrimination or, or biases. I will say once they do interact with me or once they do realize my status or what I do for a living, the tone changes, but I don't think it changes significantly in terms of the expectations of me necessarily. But I I think it changes the tone in, in terms of, oh, she's not like the others, right? Or not like the other Black people. She's different. And I want to challenge that narrative. Again, I always... My stand still stands. The only difference between me and any other person is opportunity and resources. If, if someone had the exact same resources as I have with the exact same support system, most of the time people will be able to have similar outcomes, right? Even that notion sometimes that I'm not like the others, I think it's kind of an insulting to me and others because it's like, why do you think, having walked in their shoes, you know what they have to go through? There are some people even, you know, again, that had extreme challenges and they were even going beyond me in, in certain ways that are directors and, and doing a fantastic job and you're really giving back to the community and they had to overcome extraordinary amount of circumstances and challenges and obstacles. So to the fact that um, uh, the fact that they even state such a thing, I, I think it's like kind of like a backhanded compliment. It is. Yeah. 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 That's what, so as a black female doctor, how do you then balance your work with the mental welfare of the daily biases and racism that you experience? Honestly, just prayer, prayer and just I'm not feeling guilty for being selfish with myself, meaning um, taking the time to kind of get away, recharge, refill myself with things that make me happy, that edify me so that I can continue to have the conversation and continue to pour out. Because I think oftentimes, especially in medicine, we're kind of taught to just keep working despite how you feel, just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep giving, keep giving. Um, but oftentimes you end up getting burned out very early in, in your career. And I didn't want to be that. You know, I do want to do this for quite some time, at least before <laughs> I eventually retire. So I no longer am apologetic about just feeling time away from myself and refilling myself and resting mm-hmm. so that I can continue to pour out for other people. And, and all those things is very important because as a black woman, you also have to prove yourself more yeah. than anybody else. Yeah. But they doubted you already. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I no longer fall victim to that any, as much as I did before. Recently, again, by the way, to God, I have um, been board certified. So all the um, doctors that I respect and they always say, that, okay, this is the next step, this is the next step. Like, I have achieved that step. So I no longer feel that I have to prove myself in that regard. Now it's just challenging myself to be the best version of myself every day. Mm-hmm. If someone want 
has a question that that's on them. I can only give my best, which is what I will continue to do, despite what anybody else, you know, will think of. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> that's the most important. So what advice would you want to give to parents within African immigrant community or any other communities of color whose hope is for their children to become a doctor? What advice would you give to those aspiring doctors, those who want to follow the same path? Well, number one, I would say for parents to who aspire for their children to be doctors, really see if that's what's going to make them happy. Because one thing about medicine, I will never recommend it for anyone who truly does not want it. Because honestly, it's a thankless job <laughs> in terms of you are taking time away from yourself away from your family, maybe missed experiences, opportunities, because you're dedicating so much time and effort and honestly money to become a doctor. I know there's like this notation that, you know, doctors, you're rich, but many doctors are in like hundreds of thousands, if not million dollars of debt. So it's definitely not for the faint at heart and it's not for the financial prosperity and most Africans don't think that it is. Don't get me wrong. It is still one of the higher paying professions worldwide, but there's a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money to get there. Make sure first that it is something that your child really wants to do because that's what's going to actually propel them to finish and complete. There's a lot of people that pursued medicine that did not complete it just because it was difficult and they probably didn't have the resources or the, that person didn't realize it was for them. And by the time they're in fourth year medical school, they already have all this debt. Make sure that it is something that they want to pursue. And then if it is something that they want to pursue, encourage them. Keep telling them that they can do it because it's going to be a lot of people that are going to tell them that they can't. And there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say that why do you think that you can do this or who else is in it before you? But you have to keep encouraging them. There's going to be times where they come to you crying and they think they can't do it. You continue to encourage them that they can and just support them in any way. Even if therapy is needed. Yes, therapy. Absolutely. And don't shy away from that. And I know sometimes African people are like, oh, what's therapist? No. If they have to go to therapy, if they're telling you they need therapy, support them. Let them go. And you also, you go there, see what type of tools and resources you can use to continue to support them and also support yourselves. Because it's tolling. I think it's tolling for parents as well. Oftentimes, you know, you know, I'm 31 years now. I'm not married. <laughs> so that's another prayer point from my parents. <laughs> they don't blame themselves, but they're like, ah, is it because she's a doctor that she, she can't do it? You have a lot of, it's toiling on them as well. And, you know, support you and to try to, oftentimes my mom, sometimes I can't get out of bed because I've been working overnight. So she would have to, you know, cook, help me, you know, do laundry, stuff of that nature. So it's, it's told on them too. So it's not for the things of heart. It's not for people that are just in it for the money. It has to be something deeper than that because that's not going to sustain you. Like you said, doctors who hold half a million dollar loan, student loan, yeah. and they pay, mm-hmm. or $1 million loan they pay. Last year I was listening to NPR and this woman was talking about her own student loan. Over mm-hmm. 500,000 student loan. She actually took a second loan to be able to bring down the interest. The interest. Yeah. And she talked about when she expressed the stress 
that she's going through emotionally, financially. Yeah. I don't even think this field is for me. I don't even think it's worth it that I went into this field. You know, we're not saying that children, those who want to go into this field can, but if it's, that's what you want to go, go ahead and do. Go ahead, exactly. An emotional struggle that comes into being a medical doctor. I read uh, somewhere also, they talked about the depression rate among medical students is very high and also suicide. I've heard story of a medical student who committed suicide because they couldn't just deal with the pressure. Pressure, yeah. yeah. Area. So it's not for everybody. It's what makes our children happy. Life is not about not only making money. It's about doing what is fulfilling for you, that you're so good at it. And nobody can duplicate you. You can only be your Exactly. For those aspiring doctors, what advice would you have for them? For start doctors, just keep going. Keep going. It is not easy, but if it's something that you really want to do, it is worth it. I honestly can't imagine myself doing anything else. I love my job. I love doing what I do. I love the impact that I have in people's lives. So whatever that looks like for you, pursue it. It is worth it. It is worth it in the end. There's a lot of sacrifice to get there, but it's worth it if it's truly what you want to do. Do you have any way many of our listeners who may want to connect with you online or on social media? Yeah, absolutely. Um, on online, on Instagram, my Instagram tag is sasu, S-A-S-U underscore lens, L-E-N-S underscore M-D. So sometimes like every um, every other Thursday, I do a OBGYN, where you can ask questions about what it takes to get there or just have questions about all female reproductive systems in general. I answer those questions. And the reason why I, I do that, because oftentimes I feel like women, my friends and uh, followers ask me these questions anyway. So um, I wanted to kind of, and it's anonymous, so no one has to know your business or anything of that, of that nature. But it's a, another way for me to educate um, other women on what's normal, what to expect. Again, to just have people, to have women specifically take more ownership and education about their bodies. Thank you so much, Dr. Asemota, for coming to Pansa Pansa Life Podcast to share your experience as first-generation Nigerian daughter who grew up in America. Very proud of you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ponza Ponza Live Podcast. We hope to have you back with us in the next episode as we continue to explore the nuances of the African immigrant experience. If you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at talk at ponzaponza.org. That is T-A-L-K at P-A-N-S-A, P-A-N-S-A dot org. And follow us on Instagram at pansa.pansaforum. Until next time, remember to spread kindness and love. Thank you and take care of yourselves.